Good morning. Happy Sunday. Uh, my name is Marianne Katz, and I'm connected here through the women's ministry at Calvary. Today's scripture is a reading from Revelations 13, 1 through 10. <coughs> Excuse me. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who can fight against us, against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was swallowed, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with the, with the sword, he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. My name is Zach Thompson. I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary Bible Church. And I was able to get away for a little bit before this. So I, I haven't been up here for the last two weeks. And, and it's such a, a great time to, to rest and recharge. But it also makes me all the more excited to come back and be surrounded by all of you. I, I really did uh, miss you over that time even when it means coming back to one of the most controversial and debated sections of one of the most controversial and debated books of the Bible. And so uh, my recommendation, let's take this time. Stretch if you need a stretch. Take a deep uh, breath because we have a lot to get through in a very short amount of time. And all the while, Remember that we are called to love one another and be united uh, as Christians uh, above all other things. So uh, last week, uh, we were looking at Revelation chapter 12. Pastor John was here, not to be confused with John, who wrote the book of Revelation. They're two different guys. Uh, both are great, though. Uh, but Pastor John was here helping us see what John wrote in Revelation chapter 12. And, and in that, we were introduced to a character that we will see for, for pretty much the rest of the book of Revelation. And that is this dragon who is identified as Satan. We're, we're also told a little bit about what Satan is like uh, in chapter 12 as well. Look, at, look again at chapter 12, verse 9. And it says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient servant, uh, serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver, that, that word's going to be important for us, the deceiver of the, of the whole world. And he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. What we see in, in uh, Revelation chapter 13 is an expansion on that idea. 
Because what happens in this chapter is Satan, who is this deceiver, is allowed. That word's very important. You probably heard the word allowed multiple times as Marianne was reading this passage for us. He has no authority in and of himself. He is allowed. God has absolute control here. Satan is allowed to deceive, to go against the people of the world and those who are in the church. And he does this by acting as kind of a parody, by mimicking God himself. And so what we see in Revelation chapter 13 is that Satan, as this deceiver, mimics God's, pow- uh, God's persons, God's power, and God's protection. In Revelation chapter 13, we see Satan, the deceiver, mimic God's persons, God's power, and God's protections. So we'll start with that first one. Uh, we see Satan mimic God's how, uh, persons. So uh, we just had a section read for us, and it might make us recall that all throughout the book of uh, Revelation that we have been seeing the work of God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Uh, maybe uh, we think back to Revelation chapters four and five. We said it's, it's kind of the, the core of this book. It's this heavenly throne room scene where God is being worshiped and glorified, and, and all three, all three persons are there. All three we see at work. But now we have three different characters. Satan slash the dragon, this beast that comes from the sea, and beast that comes from the land. Three contrary characters. And even in what they're doing, their relationships with each other, it sounds like it's mimicking God and his person. So uh, Satan is standing at the sand of the sea, sending forth this beast that comes from the sea, just like God the Father has sent God the Son. And this beast from the sea receives worship and has rulership over the earth, just like Jesus has those things. And then this second beast, this one from the land, attests and affirms what the, the beast that came before it is doing, much like the Holy Spirit attests and affirms the work and person of Jesus. So you see it's mimicking the persons of, of God, even in how they are relating to each other. And much of the writing of chapter 13 is focused on this beast that comes from the sea, this one that acts as kind of a mimic, that is a parody almost of the personal work of Jesus. Or if we want to use a term for it, it looks very much so like an antichrist. And here is where the first debate comes in. Who is this person? I mean, even more than just who, how many are this person? Is this telling us to expect one figure that is to come, the Antichrist, or is it representing all people who mimic the personal work of Jesus? There are many, multi, uh, there are many Antichrists. Like 1 John tells us that we are to expect many people who are Antichrists. So is it one or is it many? And then it's the, the fact, is this someone who's already come in the first century? Is this someone who is to come in the final days before Jesus returns? Or is it the the work of Jesus against mimicking the uh, the work of Satan, mimicking the work of Jesus all throughout the history of the church? Well, wherever we land on answering that question, we all still need to do the same thing. And I know I've been gone for a little bit, but I so desperately hope, like I'm pleading with you, please know the answer to this question. When we find an image in the book of Revelation, what do we do? 
Thank you so much. I so appreciate it. We go to the Old Testament. Uh, we don't need to physically turn there, but, but Daniel 7 is the big influence behind this. Uh, there's also a little bit of, uh, of Job chapters 40 and 41, which I wasn't going to bring up, but I, I think we have some of our men who's part of the Monday night Bible study in here, and I think you're reading this, this week was chapters 40 and 41. And what do you see in those chapters? Well, there's a beast in the sea and a beast on the land. That's really interesting. But Daniel chapter seven is, is uh, the primary focus behind that. And if you were to go to Daniel seven, which we don't have the time to do, but in Daniel chapter seven, Daniel receives a vision and he sees four different animals that come. And, and later we're told what that is. It's these kings or kingdoms that will arise and, and make war against God's people. And yet in the midst of all that, God will establish a kingdom that surpasses them all, that will last forever, that cannot be conquered. So in the midst of these ferocious kingdoms that will rise, God's kingdom will stand. Now as you go to Revelation chapter 13, you see all four of those animals, but put together as one beast. All four of the descriptions that's given of the beast come from Daniel chapter seven. Now that could be telling us a couple of different things. Maybe it's telling us that, that it's, we're to expect a king or a, a ruler of some kind or some sort of political power or even a nation that is worse than all those who have come before. Or, or it's telling us that, that Satan is working in all kings or nations, that he has a part in, in going against the work of God throughout church history in the work of all political powers that's going on. And there's also an aspect of where we say, like John has an original audience. He's talking to uh, the, the seven churches in the first century. And there's a part to where he's helping them see that Satan is behind some of the work of the Roman empire as well. Like as you look at the details that's given of this beast in this chapter in chapter 17, it sounds Romy. But that's a lot of details that are given. What does this mean? As we, in the midst of all those details, what is it that this actually means? What we see is that there is an enemy, some opposition to God. It could be a ruler, a nation, or a political system that claims to take the place of God, that mimics God in the life of people. So what we see people doing is rather than responding to the God of the universe, the only one worthy of authority and power and honor, that has instead been given to something else, this thing that's been given as a rival, that people respond in worship and awe to something other than God. They've replaced God with something less in their life. And I think we see that as we look at the next, next deception of Satan, as we see uh, how Satan is mimicking God's power. Satan is mimicking God's power. Um, let me reread for us Revelation chapter 13, verse four. And it's they, so the people uh, of, of the earth, worship the dragon, for he has given his authority to the beast. And they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Who is like the beast? Now, I think this is something that, that John's audience would have immediately latched onto because that phrase is used all throughout the Old Testament about God, who is like our God? 
Who, who can match his authority, his power, his, his honor, his goodness? Who, who is as worthy as he is? Who is more powerful than him? Who can even stand against our God? But now that is being said about this beast. Who is like him? Who's more powerful than him? It's mimicking God's power. You, you see it as well. Uh, we'll read about the second beast in a little bit who, who has these signs that are being done and they sure sound like God's power that he gave to his people in the Old Testament. And then there's also this interesting detail in, in verse three that, that there's this mortal wound that the beast has, but it is healed. Now, here's the thing about mortal wounds. They don't tend to heal seeing as they're mortal. And so what we have then, and this is fascinating, it's almost like a counterfeit resurrection. All throughout this, you see God's power is being mimicked by this beast as the source of, of authority, of, of, uh, of strength that no one else can match. And you see it as, as you look at what it is the second beast is doing. Uh, let me read for us Revelation 13, starting in verse 11. It says, then I saw another beast. So beast two. Uh, so now we have all three characters, dragon, beast from the sea, now another beast rising out of the earth. Now two horns like a lamb. Interesting, it looks like a lamb. And it spoke like a dragon. And it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It, perform, it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. And by the signs, I think this verse is really important, and by the signs, it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast. Uh, it, de uh, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. So it is deceiving the people on the earth. It is causing people to worship that first beast. It is, so that's kind of a religious way of putting it. So uh, this second beast comes along and causes people to worship that. If we don't want to use religious terms there, it is to give their allegiance to him, to put their affection in him, to tie their hopes and their security to this beast. So it is using this, this deceptive mean to, to not just say like, look at how great this beast is to, to show how powerful it is that it's, it's a rival to, to, uh, to God, but it's showing to put your affection and allegiance in it. It's not just showing that something is coming, trying to take God's place, but it is saying that those things that you can only get in this life that come from God, direction, identity, purpose, worth, all those things, it says find that elsewhere. I, I want to pause. I, I really want to make sure that we're getting this. Do we see what those two beasts are doing? Where God alone is on a throne with all authority and power, there's another entity that tries to rival him. Where God alone is, all, is worthy of all worship and affection and allegiance, there's some entity that says, find that elsewhere. So the question that, that comes from this is what do we give our worship to? What do we align ourselves with? What gets our all? 
So much of uh, the church, at least in recent history, has been focused on that first beast, this anti-Christ type figure, because he has power and authority. He's mimicking Jesus. He's some sort of ruling power. But I, I think for many of us, probably the biggest danger of this passage comes from this second beast. Because as we look at that first piece, it comes from the sea with, with all this authority. It's this, this spectacle of an event. The second beast is already on the earth, in the midst, using deception to try to get people to give their allegiance to something else. See, there's a couple different ways that conquering could happen. Conquering can happen from the sword. There's an enemy that's stronger, they come, they defeat you, and, and you've been conquered. There's another way that conquering can happen. It's waking up one day and realizing that you trust and believe and value things that you never thought you would. And that's much more subtle. That can creep in. And, and that's the work that the second beast does. It, it gives a, a, a rival to, to put desires and affection in, to value in, to put their allegiance in something else. The warning here for those following Jesus is that it could just be that subtle moment where you wake up one day and realize that the things that we put our affections in, the things that we value, look just like those who don't claim Christ. Two different ways of conquering here. And, and I, th I think that that's more dangerous for us because many of us are in a relatively safe place, at least for following Jesus. We're gathered in a church, uh, and we advertise that this is a church. We do churchy things together. We don't have worry with, with associating with Jesus and the impact that that has. Much of the church throughout history has been oppressed by political powers, much like that first beast. And so many can't say that to be true. But the other side of things is the, the church has been oppressed by religious aspects or what you put your allegiance in, your affection and, and while many of us aren't, aren't worried about our safety for following Jesus, yeah, I, I don't want to diminish this. Maybe, maybe we feel pressure in our workplace that we have to affirm something that we say is not true, otherwise we face consequences. I, I don't want to downplay that. But for most of us, I think there's that daily trial, that daily temptation to identify ourselves with or value things apart from Jesus the things that fill our time, the things that get our attention and our affection, that subtle thing that, that we're just partaking in what's going on around us, that we don't realize the impact that it has on us, but as we fill our minds and our hearts and our eyes with things of this world, that's that subtle creeping in as we realize that our allegiance is in something other than Jesus. This produces rival desires, that become our focus. I mean, even just look at the stats that are coming out of the people who leave the church, leave the American church. And so often we think of the drastic stories of a college student went and took a philosophy class, now they don't think God's real and that's why they've left the church. Or people leave because of fighting over politics or disagreeing over, over legislative issues or because of abuse by leaders in the church. Certainly people leave for those things. I don't, don't don't hear me over speaking on that. But the majority of people who leave the church don't leave to go to something else. 
They haven't been persuaded to, to join atheism. They, they haven't persuaded to join another religion. They aren't leaving to go to something else. They're leaving because something's just come up. I mean, sports on Sunday, and so just stopped going to church. Or um, we moved, and we just never found a place that was a fit again. Or, uh, you know, it's, it's really early to get up. I mean, I mean, this is the biggest nine o'clock service that we've had in a while, and uh, coincidentally, we all got an extra hour of sleep last night. But, so, uh, that's probably a bad example. I'm not picking on anyone in here, but, <laughs> but that is something. Like, like, church is just so early, and it's just inconvenient to get there. It's hard to wrangle the kids together, and so people just stop going, and they just never get around to going back again. It just stopped working for me. I just stopped feeling it after a while. And what we see in those moments is that subtle deceptive bit of something else taking priority, something else getting our affection, something else that we deem as being worthy of our worship, even if we don't use the word worship. That something is a rival to turn towards anything other than Jesus in the moment. That's the work that this beast does. Or another aspect of this could just be we become dissatisfied with what Jesus has called us to do. So much of this this passage is about a call to endure. The church is called to endure in the midst of all of this difficulty that's going on. And yet sometimes we're just not satisfied with enduring. It'd be so much easier. My life would be so much easier if I stopped enduring and just gave in. That would give so much more. Or the flip side of that, my life would be so much easier. Why are we called to endure when we can fight back? We can go against those who are against us. Nancy Guthrie, I think, captures this really well when she talks about the danger that this can show up as in the church. She says, whenever a pulpit is used to point to the state as our hope and salvation, rather than Christ alone as our hope and salvation. We're hearing the voice of this beast. Wherever a pulpit is used to encourage compromise with culture so that our Christianity will be accepted or even applauded, we're hearing the voice of this beast. Do you see how subtle this is? How easy this is to fall into that trap? I, I mean, maybe right now, as, as we're sitting here, we're, we're explaining it away. Oh, it's, it's really not that bad. It's not that big of a deal. Or minimizing it as well. Or, or trying to come up with exceptions. You, you said not to compromise, but shouldn't we compromise in this place to, to be more accessible? Or, or you said not to fight back, but shouldn't we stand for truth? Yeah, of course we should. But is, if, if we're coming up with excuses or explanations rather than what I think this passage calls us to do, which is examination, I think we're missing it. A passage like this should cause us to look inward. What is getting my affection? What is getting my allegiance? Am I, uh, that we ought to be filling our minds and our hearts and our eyes with the things that we say we truly value. That we ought to be spending our times with, with the things that we say are truly worthwhile. And the need for this examination is there, this constant examination because of what we are told here, that there is a deceiver working against those who are aligned with God, that you have an enemy. 
Third thing that we see is that Satan mimics God's protection. Mimics God's protection. This is Revelation 13, starting in verse 16. It says, and it, so this second beast, the one who calls for uh, affection and allegiance to go elsewhere, it causes all, both great and small, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six, six, six. So before we get into any of this, uh, we might remember that we saw a mark earlier. In Revelation chapter seven, God sealed his people. God sealed those who are identified as being part of him with his name on their forehead. And this is important because in this exact context that this is brought up, we're reminded of that. Revelation 14 verse one repeats the same thing, that God has sealed his people. There's so much mystery about it. What's going on with this mark? It is telling us in the context that God has given his protection, his seal over his people, and as Satan is mimicking God all throughout, he has a rival seal, an alternative seal that identifies people as being apart from God, and that is their ability to operate in this world under this beast. Now, it, it doesn't answer the question is, what does this number mean? I mean, it tells us to, to calculate it. It's the number of a man. And so people have been doing that ever since the church has been the church. A couple of different ways that we could take uh, with this. Uh, one is that we've seen the number seven repeated all throughout the book of Revelation. It's, it's the number of perfection. And so it's been identified as being God's number. And if uh, God is in three persons, so seven, 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 that could be God's number. And now we have something that's mimicking that, but falling short of that. It's a number of imperfection. It looks like it's close enough, but it's not, it's fallen and imperfect. And if that's the number of the beast, then, then maybe it's, it's a parody off of a number associated with God. The other one is a bit more complex and it is using uh, gematria. Uh, and what gematria is, is uh, when, I wanna go as simple as possible on this. Um, when a number is, uh, is given to a, a letter, so uh, when a number is given a numerical value, that's what's going on in gematria. So when you create a whole word, that word is going to have a number that it equals. You add up the value of each letter and that gets you to a word. The best explanation I have, you know those decoder type things that you do to where like A equals one and B equals two and you're given a bunch of numbers and, and you figure out what, what it is. It comes out to a sentence as you're decoding it that way. I think of a Christmas story as, as Ralphie has his decoder. He's listening to it on there. He goes to the bathroom and he's, he's decoding it all out there. And he's like, be sure to drink your oval team. It's just a crummy commercial. So it's sort of like that to where each letter is given a numerical value. But rather than decoding a, a message from the numbers, it's adding the letters, uh, uh, the number of the letters in a word to get to a whole value. And so with that being the case, some people have said that this, this number stands for certain people throughout history. One of the most popular options is Nero. He was one of the Caesars of Rome, one of the rulers of Rome, under which the church first faced its, uh, biggest, perse its biggest persecution. And so if you take the name Caesar Nero and then translate it into Hebrew, and then depending on who you talk to, you take a, a slightly alternate spelling of that, uh, those letters equal 666. 
Another option is, uh, you know how we just read that passage and it kept saying beast and beast and beast and it shows up all throughout this passage. Again, if you take the Greek word that's used for beast, translate it into Hebrew, calculate the number, you get to 666. So there's all kinds of options that people have done to try to figure out who is this, uh, this beast based off of the number that's given of, of adding up different things to equal 666. And people get really creative. Uh, it, essentially, all you have to do, find someone you don't like, force the number 666 in there in some capacity, and there you have it. You figured out who the beast is. And this has happened many times. Uh, I mean, a, a famous one is uh, Ronald Wilson Reagan. Six letters, six letters, six letters. So, I mean, people said he's the beast. Uh, Hillary Rodham Clinton. That's 767. I was trying to see if I can get anyone in here. But... <laughs> Uh, so, but you really can't. People have tried to say that she is the beast. They, they force the number in. There are gematria calculators online that you can go and play around with. Uh, I'm sure there's an alternate spelling where I could be the beast. I'm sure there's a way that you could be the beast. It's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, but uh, so uh, the other aspect of this that, that's gotten a lot of focus is what is this mark of the beast? This number that's put on the head in the, uh, or the, the hand that's an alternate to God's ceiling. Uh, what is it that, that, that this is standing for? And, and again, there's been a lot of guesses. By, by just a rough calculation of what I've seen, uh, there's been uh, over 1,500 uh, guesses as to what this has been by Christians during, during the Christian age. I, and, and let me tell you, all of them have been wrong so far. I mean, going over 1,500, those are Rockies numbers. Like, we don't want to be going that poorly in this one. Let me give a couple of examples of what this has looked like. So in the 1930s, uh, Christians, uh, some Christians opposed social security numbers. Being identified by a number, that sounds like the mark of the beast. In a similar way, uh, three-digit area codes were opposed in the 1950s. In the 1970s, Christians, uh, some Christians, not all, were against credit cards. I mean, being able to buy, sell, and trade based off a number, that sounds like the mark of the beast. In, in a very similar way, in the 1980s, barcodes were opposed by some people. It, or it can just become, again, find something you don't like and say it's the mark of the beast, much like some Christians did uh, in 2020 and 2021. Uh, But ultimately, I think the answer about what this is is so much easier than this. It's not a puzzle that we need to try to figure out. The, The context of it is it's a rival to being identified with Jesus, being identified with the person and work of Jesus that he has done, being sealed and associated as one of God's people. This is a mark, some sort of reminder some sort of identifier that is showing that people aren't associated with what God is doing. It is something that identifies people who aren't identified by Jesus. But there's so much that, that, that goes around the, the, the who is the beast, what is this number, what is this mark that, that has caused so many different reactions. I mean, just when that number shows up, people respond to it. Like, think of how many numbers pop up in your day. But when three sixes are in a row, people either recoil or they boycott a product because it has 666 in it. Or uh, they, they make jokes about it. It's like, ooh, it must be, must be evil. Look at it. 
I, I mean, it causes something inside of us. I, I remember uh, there, there was a, a fast food order that I used to get that, that came out to $6.66. I mean, obviously, I'm dating myself. You can't get a meal at a fast food place for $6.66 anymore. Say what you will about inflation, but it's saving us from the mark of the beast. Uh, uh, but it, it really did make me recoil in that moment. Like, should I get something else? Like, there's that question. Or, or in our worship services, we, we have a list of, of uh, what goes on in the worship service and how long each thing is supposed to take. So we, we had a video. It's listed up there for two minutes, 30 seconds. Each song, we have the length of time that it's supposed to go to. Uh, the sermon length, which I always just take as a suggestion, but I, I'm given a, a minute marker of what that's supposed to go. If you look at this very service, the length of time that it's supposed to take is 66 minutes and six seconds. And doesn't make us go like, ooh, maybe this church is, is satanic or something. No, I changed the, the length to f- intentionally make it last that long. I played with the numbers to make that happen. And, and that's, that's, that's some of this point, is you can make just about anything fit these numbers. And, and my worry is that it might make us miss something very real that this passage is trying to do for us. Because one of the primary goals of the book of Revelation is to not make us afraid. And yet so many people are marked by fear because of what's happening in this, in this chapter. So many people have been afraid that we now need to have a word that describes this specific type of fear that Christians throughout the age have suffered with hexacosioe, hexacanta, hexaphobia. Fear of the number 666. There is an actual word for this because of how prevalent it is. And I've never rehearsed something more for a sermon than this word. (laughs) But the point of this passage is not trying to tell us that there's some boogeyman item that's that's gonna get you if you don't know exactly what it is. The point of this passage is saying that you have a real enemy that is trying to deceive you to focus on anything other than God maybe even focusing on a number that God has given us or identifying a beast that he has warned us about. That there is a real enemy who is trying to deceive you every day to put your allegiance in something other than him, to worship something other than him. See, we shouldn't walk away with Revelation 13 thinking that we have to crack a code, otherwise we're doomed. That yeah, uh, 0 for 1500, it's happened throughout church history, but me with my YouTube search history, I'm gonna be the one who gets this. It's showing us that you have real opposition pulling you away. The point of this passage is not to be so, so overly focused on trinkets, but to resist the tempter. Revelation is written to us so that we can be emboldened rather than fear, rather than have a phobia. Emboldened in worship, emboldened in telling others about Jesus, emboldened to trust in God rather than anything else. What I think the point of this passage is, is more so than asking what, in the, what is this mark? Yes, be diligent, uh, use, uh, read the scripture well, absolutely do those things. If, if you are the one who figures out what the, mar- the mark is, that's awesome, that's so good. God's given us this warning for a reason. But our focus should be less on what is this mark and more on what marks you. Do you have the seal from God or the seal of the beast? The mark of God 
or the mark of the beast. Because look at the repeated truth that shows up in both chapters 13 and 14. It says in verse 13, verse 10, it says, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Shows up again in verse 14, uh, chapter 14, 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Why are we given these two chapters? It is so we can endure. Chapter 13 is written. It shows us all the things that will and might happen to those who follow Jesus, and so the call to endure. Don't be caught off guard. This is what will happen. This is what is happening, so resist, endure in the midst of it. It shows us the need to endure. And then chapter 14 is written to show us how we are able to endure. How It's kind of like a heavenly perspective of the same event. This is uh, Revelation 14, starting in verse 1. It says, And I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. Maybe you remember, chapter 13 uh, got kicked off because Satan was standing by the, by the shore of the sea. Now we have someone else standing. The Lamb, Jesus. And with him were the 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their forehead. The actual seal. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice that I heard was like the sound of harpists playing their hearts, for they were singing a new song, a song of victory before the throne and before the four living the- uh, creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. And it is those who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. I don't think that's literal. It's just saying that they haven't defiled themselves with the things of this world. They remain pure uh, for, for following God. It is those who follow the lamb wherever he goes, that they're his disciples. It is those who have been redeemed from mankind as the first fruits of God and the lamb. And in their lo- mouth was no lie to be found for they were blameless. The call for the endurance of the saints is given to us. We see the need for that in chapter 13. Look at all the horrible things that are going on on the earth and the opposition against the church. But how is that endurance possible? Well, the curtain is pulled back on the same event. And what looks like conquering and capture, the call to compromise, is replaced with this time of exaltation and praise and glorious worship of the only one who's worthy of being worshiped, really. A greater reality is is shown. The curtain is pulled back. We see where Satan was was standing by the sea. It's replaced by the, the lamb standing on Mount Zion. And throughout the rest of, of, of chapter 14, it's this call to not remain passive. We, we might think of endurance as, you know, just hang in there, just keep doing it. And, and that could sound passive, but, but chapter 14 tells us that that is not the case. Endurance is so difficult. How do you remain faithful when there is a pull to turn towards other things other than God? How do you remain faithful when that, that pull to compromise, uh, to give in, it, wouldn't it make this life so much easier? Wouldn't it save relationship? Wouldn't it make us more popular? Wouldn't we have to not have these conversations if we just gave in in this? Uh, that pull to, to fight, like I'm gonna fight for my rights on this thing because uh, I, I can take things to my hands and I'll be the one doing it. That pull to go away from the work of Jesus, we are called to resist that actively in endurance. And the way that we are able to do that is by the promises that come in chapter 14. First and foremost, we see the promise of judgment. That may not sound like good news, and we'll talk about it a little bit more next week, but the relief come because the beast is overthrown. 
that victory has been assured and all the wrongs that we see in this world are righted. When we know the end, it helps us to endure now. Think of every scary movie that you've ever seen. Wouldn't it be different if you have someone next to you saying, hey, there's a bad guy behind that bush? Or uh, these are the, the, the people who are gonna survive at the end of the story. Like knowing the end of the story helps us to understand what's going on in the midst of it. And we are told the end of the story. All wrongs have been made right. We're able to endure because we are shown what we are called to do with this life, that, that focus on purity. How easy it is to fill our hearts and our eyes and our minds with the things of this world. We're called to fill our lives with the only God who's worthy of that. And so is that how we're spending our time? I'm not saying don't watch TV shows or spend time with non-Christians. Obviously, I'm not saying that. But if we say that we value God, if we say that we found something better in him, is that reflected in how we are using our lives now? And we're able to endure to the end because we live lives of praise. That in all of this, this active endurance, it could sound like, all right, I just gotta try really hard. No, we rest We praise God now in practice of what we will be doing for eternity to come because of the truth that's told in this, that we have been rescued and redeemed by the blood of the lamb, that we have been saved by the person and work of Jesus. Chapter 14 mentions repeatedly the the cup of God's wrath being poured out on those who have identified themselves with the beast. We rejoice, we are able to endure because we know that Jesus has taken that cup from us. And that's what we celebrate when we take communion together. The fact that that cup has been taken from us. That Jesus has indeed rescued and redeemed us. Communion is a practice that goes back uh, to even before Jesus died on behalf of the sins of people. He was with his disciples. He took the bread that was there and he was telling them what it was that he was doing. He broke the bread and he said, this is my body that's given for you. He was telling, as I go to die, it's so that you might have life, life now on this earth, the ability to live in this earth and life forever to come. And he took the cup and he said, uh, this is the new covenant The cup that we do drink from is the promises of God. We don't drink from the cup of God's wrath. We drink from the cup of his blessing, that he has covered our sins, that he has saved us from from all that we have earned because of him laying down his life on our behalf. So as we take communion, we we celebrate what it is that Jesus has done. We are reminded of of what he has accomplished on our behalf. We receive nourishment to continue living, to continue enduring when that is so difficult to do in this life. But we want to do so reflecting on what Jesus has done. We want to do so understanding that it's easy for us to be deceived, that we are filling our lives with with our worship and affection towards other things, and we want to repent of that before him. So I'm gonna pray for us. I'm gonna give us a couple moments to pause, reflect on what Jesus has done, to to reflect on where it is to uh, uh, inspect ourselves to see where do we still need to repent before him. And then after you've taken a moment to do that, I invite you to come to one of our three stations that we have uh, to take communion together. You can take the, the, the bread, the cup at that station, head back to your seat, and then we will, we will end in a song of exaltation, much like what we saw in Revelation 14. But let me pray for us. And then whenever you're ready, please join us in taking communion. Father, we are so grateful for the truth of what you have accomplished for us. We're so grateful that you have given us warnings. You've shown us the need to endure. You've given us uh, the means to endure. 
We're so grateful that you have saved us and you sustain us. And so we have endless reasons to praise you. Let us come before you seeking purity, seeking to follow you above all else, not merely to avoid a a bitter end, but because you have given us something better. In you, we find a greater story. So it's to you and you alone that we pray. Amen.